Hello, and welcome to The Camera Report, brought to you by WaterfootFilms.com. I'm Sean Malone, and I'm your host. This month, we are speaking to accomplished filmmaker and one of Australia's most talented exports, Oscar-winning director of photography, John Seal. Mr. Seal has DP'd nearly 40 feature films and began his career as a camera operator, shooting for the likes of director of photography Russell Boyd and director Peter Weir. He has won two ACS awards, an ASC award, a BAFTA, and an Oscar, and has been nominated for many more. His contributions to world cinema and cinematography were recognized in 2011 with a Lifetime Achievement Award at Camera Maj, and earlier in the year, the ASC International Award. He is perhaps best known for his collaborations with visionary directors Peter Weir and the late Anthony Minghella, shooting modern classics such as Witness, The Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, Cold Mountain, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and The English Patient, the film which gained him his BAFTA, ASC, and Oscar wins. His most recent film, The Tourist, is yet another testament to Mr. Seal's extraordinary talent and vision behind the camera. He joins us today from Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much, John, for coming on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. First of all, I want to congratulate you on being honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award last year at Camera Maj and on receiving the ASC International Award. Well, they're both very humbling moments, I must say. I feel like every good DP has some kind of self-imposed ethic or contract going into a film. So, for instance, a DP might go in thinking, my job is to tell the story unobtrusively or to fulfill the director's vision. I wondered, what goes through your mind before you start a project, and what contract do you make with yourself? Once I've received the script, I sit and read it very privately so that there's no distractions, and, and you can really then get absorbed into the screenplay as a visual and the fact that you're reading the storyline. So by the end of it, without any distractions, it's almost as though you've actually watched the film. But what you're doing, or what I'm doing, is creating visuals in my mind that I feel might enhance the reading of it. Sometimes this is totally different to what the director has in mind, but at least it gets the visual juices going and ideas going, and then you both get together and uh, start to nut out what the film should look like. Sometimes it's a very complex way of doing it. Other times it's very simple. It depends on the director's visual of it. So I wait till the script comes and use that then as the uh, pivot point to the ideas of the visuals from both people and then combine them. The late Freddie Francis once said, there are three types of photography, good photography, bad photography, and the right photography. I don't know if you're familiar with that quotation, but he said the right photography is what tells the story best. And from from all I know about your approach to cinematography, you might agree with his assessment? Completely. You know, sometimes in criticism that you read of uh, people who are criticizing a film that they say the photography was no good. And then I might go and see the film and think, now listen, that photography was was right for the film. Uh, a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. We as cinematographers tend to want to make it perfect photography all the time. That's your instinct in a way, is to, is to create this beautiful photography where people go, whoa, that looked great. The question has to be asked, does it really suit the film? That maybe the director and the script calls for grainy, gritty, grotty kind of photography that 
you know, photojournalistic type documentary. And sometimes a cameraman might find it very difficult to move into that visualisation and create that for the story. It's a lot of it's in the eye of the beholder. And I think that the, the right photography is possibly the photography where you both agree with the look of the film that you're making. You and the director? You and the director. And and therefore the final result is what the director visualised. And I'm a great advocate of that. I believe that most of them that I've worked with are writers. And I think that when they're sitting there for weeks and months and sometimes years writing their the best screenplay ever written, they're visualising it as well. And they though they can't photograph it themselves, although some can't, they ask for a, a cinematographer to come in, and they hit the cinematographer choices. Let's face it; sometimes based on the films that that cinematographer has done, that would agree with what that director has written or visualizes. So that he then will ask that cinematographer to join him to make this film. You know, as I said, some films are too beautiful, and I feel that um, that, uh, in all honesty, that sometimes if it hadn't been so commercial-like beautiful that the film might have had more impact as an overall product. And I believe that the overall product is what we should aim for, not either personal satisfaction, visual satisfaction out of it, or whatever else. It's the product of the director, the actors, the the dialogue, the the cinematography, the sound, the editing. Everything is a final product mixed together to be presented. Would I be uh, getting you in trouble if I followed that up and said any particular films you can think of that are too beautiful, in your opinion, per the story that they're trying to tell? Only that in the early days in the Australian film industry, which was a fantastic time of learning for all of us, a lot of the scripts were, you know, a little bit wanting in uh, substance, but they were made, and so many times I had people, you know, say, oh, I saw such and such a film the other day, and uh, I, I'd say, yep, how was it? And they'd say, oh, beautifully photographed by so-and-so. <laughs> and I'd say, no, 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 but what's the film like? Well, oh, it's not, you know, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. And I used to feel sad about that. Because I think, wait a minute, I'd rather... They said, oh, it's a fantastic film. It looks good, it looks good, but it's a fantastic film. I'd rather that came first in the criticism. So there were a lot that... And I learned, I think I might have burnt out of that a bit, that I didn't want people coming out of a movie that I photographed saying, oh, that was a gorgeous film. You know, it wasn't a good movie, but it was looked great. I, I didn't want that to happen. Speaking of shots looking great, one thing that I noticed in your work is you do something really well that I think all cinematographers aim to do, and that is giving each and every one of your shots lots of depth, you know, always trying to create a three-dimensional world on a two-dimensional medium. And I wondered, are there any simple tips to keep in mind for cinematographers for adding depth to every shot? We had some very interesting people in the early days in Australia that were involved with the filmmaking, and they jogged me on a lot of things that because a picture is worth a thousand words and when you realize how quick the human brain can scan a single frame of a film and work out what's in that frame and how it affects the content of that frame as far as the storyline is concerned 
then you start to realise that you can fill the frame of information that the audience will grasp, visual information. And even though it's running at 24 frames a second, they can still, over, say, one second of 24 frames, analyse an awful lot more than just simply an actor talking or a wide shot of a city or something. It's like there were little things that this particular artist was put onto one of our early Australian films and he would say, what are you looking at when you open that drawer? And in the storyline, there was a single object in the drawer that should be seen as part of the storyline. So when we did the shot of the drawer opening, I put a few props around and the set dressers gave stuff and put it in there and I just moved it around so that compositionally the main item of the storyline was in evidence. This artist walked up and he said, could I reset some of that stuff around that? And I said, yeah, sure, sure. And what he did was the most interesting thing in telling the complete story of the film simply in the contents of a drawer. It was fascinating. Not only adding physical depth, but also story depth to every shot. Exactly. And people can scan that so quickly and analyze that. A little story of the girl's character in the drawer, specific point of the film. Was becoming a DP for feature films a big goal of yours as you worked your way up the ranks? No, it wasn't. When I was learning in Australia to love the film industry, I loved camera operating. I loved it. And a part of it was exactly that example of, of an artist who reset props to tell a story. I think that the camera operator can tell the story by his framing, by what he includes in the background or doesn't include. Um, and I loved that camera operating. I loved it so much that my fellow film workers went on to become directors of photography and I ended up operating for them. And a lot of people said, well, well what are you doing sitting back operating when they've gone on to be DPs? I said, well, I love operating. <laughs> I love it to death. I think it's such an exciting job. And so when I did go up to lighting, uh, eventually, it was because I was off an extra cup of tea with sugar. Um, to do it and and I thought well it's about time I should do it so I did but I loved operating and I still do it if I can if I'm allowed or whatever I still love doing the operating on films for that reason what do you love about operating the most that storytelling ability the editing the helping of the editing uh, I found that with you know method actors it's very um, advantageous to put in multiple cameras and I love now with more cameras and making them work in a lighting situation. I've been criticised heavily for that, um, that I'm, I'm not giving full 100% uh, lighting uh, creativity to each camera because I'm on multiple cameras. And my argument is no, but I'm making a better film. And that's, that's to me is the end result because then the actors can just run their lines and when they, by cross-shooting and when they click, You've got it, man. You've got it on both sides, and the editor can cut it perfectly because it's perfect continuity. To me, that's better filmmaking, and that's what we're there for. I'm so glad you brought up your uh, tendency to do coverage with multiple cameras. Because one thing I was wondering about that was, you know, sometimes a screen actor's performance can vary, uh, maybe even greatly vary, depending on like how tight the shot is. So. For instance, you're doing a close-up, you're going to tell the actor, hey, we're in a close-up now, so they're going to respond accordingly. So when you do dual coverage, are the shots of varying focal length, and does that ever concern the actor or the director? 
Not at all. Uh, you know, I think we've lost the old, the lovely old-fashioned tradition of the wide shot, medium shot, close-up, and the fact that uh, you know matching reverse angles with a single camera were measured. The distance from the floor to the lens, the lens focal length had to be the same, and the distance from the actor had to be the same. This was matching, and the editor loved that. I think that's gone because using multiple cameras, I found. Very exciting moments of uh, doing close-ups with longer lenses through atmosphere, say like on Poseidon or, or the Perfect Storm, where the water, the dripping of water, the atmosphere hanging in the air, the smoke, uh, all created this horror of the story visually. And uh, this longer lenses helped it immensely by driving through all this foreground atmosphere just made it so much more dramatic. So little things like that really did help. I've also found that with actors changing performance on particular takes, it's so completely essential that the operator gets every take right. And focus puller, and, and I, you know, focus pulling is one of the most unbelievably difficult jobs. We can cure anything else but focus. Uh, the nose boys have it hanging around their neck and, you know, by me using multiple cameras and longer lenses driving across a set, squeezed between other wide-angle cameras, it's very unfair for them. And I warn them and I nurture them and I, I buy them dinner and <laughs> I send them wine because I'm giving them the most hardest job in the world. And I love it when they rally to it and get it right because one of the big things I believe in having been an operator for so many years is that those actors subtly change their performance every take and you've got to get it because if you don't... And I remember one of the first times when I, I was a DP and the first big picture that I did and I had a camera operator and it was long before the monitors came out and the director would always go straight to the operator and say, how was that? And the operator, you know, would have to make a decision. Uh, I had a little focus glitch in there. I had a little bump halfway. Oh, gee, but the performance was great. Good, you say. <laughs> so the director says, great, got it. Later, if he sees the bump or something and says, we had a little bump in the middle of that. And, and, and you can say, well, yes, but I, the performance was so good, I swear to you, the audience won't really notice it. But I had this operator who kept saying, no, 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 I, I can do better, I can do better. Finally, about a week in, this actor blew up and he said, what's this I can do better? You know, we're acting our socks off here in front of a camera and every after every take, this I can do better. <laughs> and, I, and I grabbed this operator, dragged him outside, put him on the wall and said, I don't want to hear that line ever again. The only line I want to hear is, God, that was great. That's all I want to hear. You make it work. Get in there and make it work, but don't ever, ever say that line again. You know. So I learned out of that as an operator long that you know you you have to work very hard for the actor and make your operating work and accept any little bumps that didn't work because that performance is going to be used. And we know that the director gets into post and drags up all the NG takes looking for that perfect performance moment. So stuff you didn't think was any good or shouldn't be in the film is going to be in there, possibly. So it's, it's better to make it all work in the first instance than to see it up there in the third instance, and it's, it's not exactly what you like. You're known well for working well with actors. Have you ever had an actor request you for a project? 
I'm not too sure whether positively I could say there was a film, but I do know that over the last 10 years, a lot of the big actors have a say in their cinematographer and the choice, if the, if it's the director, uh, can go in front of the actors and they can say, oh, yeah, OK, OK, I'll work with that guy, you know. And I think it might have happened a few times, but I'm certainly am not too sure which films it might have been. You've worked also with so many talented directors. The list is probably too long to name here. But the two that really especially stand out to most people when, when looking at your filmography are Anthony Minghella and Peter Weir. And I wondered, for those of our fans that are listening and they want to know about Mr. Weir and Mr. Minghella, can you contrast their directing styles and how each of them approached the cinematography of their films? Both of them were extremely talented writers. I think over the years, having realized that that's really where a movie comes from, a successful movie comes from is from the writing, the first instance, the, the the interaction of dialogue between actors and how real and genuine and honest it is was a forte for both of them. They both had a wonderful approach to the drama of the visualisation. Peter, on one, one particular film, wanted to shoot it on 16 mil and blow it up. He wanted grain. He wanted dirty colours. Uh, on Mosquito Coast with Harrison Ford. He wanted it dirty because that was the sort of jungle that only Harrison Ford's character, Ali Fox, would love. Um, whereas on <laughs> Gorillas in the Mist, with another director and another character and another story, that jungle had to be beautiful. So I used a diff- different negative to make that jungle beautiful. On Mosquito Coast, we used a negative that didn't make greens a nice, pretty colour. They were greasy, awful, olive drab colours. And that suited that film much much better. So, But both those directors had this wonderful rhythm of visualisation. They also both were very critical in their shooting of how they were going to edit the film. Neither of them ever just said, well, let's just shoot it in the editor or sort it out. They both wanted to give the editor the exact material that they felt was worthy of the final product and work out of that. So when you think of that combination of being able to write a, a script from the word go, to direct it so that the final product was, was their aim, is a very, very powerful way of making film for those individuals. So they both had that wonderful creative attribute that enabled them to do that. One of them played music. Uh, all the time to get the pace of the editing. Uh, the music, the beat of the music was played for the actors during uh, the warm-up period or, or up to rehearsal time, and then it was turned down, performance was given, music was turned back up again. So the beat of the music, and the music was carefully selected by Peter to suit the speed that he wanted that scene to run. So that was echoing in the actor's ear and the operator's ear and the technician's ears. Anthony didn't play music, but, it, but he had other ways of creating that pace that he wanted in the film at the, in, in the end result. So that they both had all of these attributes, uh, and so I, I enjoyed working with them immensely. My follow-up is a little bit of a delicate question because I know he was a friend of yours, but could you talk a little bit about the late Anthony Minghella and what made him special as an artist? 
he was a wonderful man, a lovely family man. He loved to know how you were, how your family were. He loved that. He was, he, his Italian heritage brought in that wonderful business of embracing families, food, and we you know we often deep in the the wilds of Romania uh, doing Coal Mountain. He would have a dinner at his house, and the actors would come. The you know technicians would you know would anybody who wanted to come could come and have dinner and a big cook up. Uh, everybody pitched in and helped to cook, and we just became a big family. The actors were part of it. The director, yeah, everybody was just a big family. And then the next day, we went out and made a movie. So we had this wonderful, uh, wonderful family feeling, and that happened. That kept going on the set. He loved the crew. He loved them, uh, and and uh, you, you know with the, we had a lot of Italians on that. There are Italians that did all three of Anthony's movies. He loved them all. He he said, we, "Now we've got this other movie going. Now you're going to bring in, you know, Tommaso, and you're going to bring in, you know, so and so and so." And all the, I say, "Oh yeah, absolutely, Anthony. They'll all be there. Oh good, good." <laughs> so he loved to have that family to make his films, but actors would tread a path to his door because of his wonderful writing ability. Uh, and many, many people, uh, students, ask me, how did he break down a book like The English Patient, beautifully written by Michael Andachi? How would a, a filmmaker break that book down? So I had to ask Anthony, and he told me how he did it, and it, the, the, which he did on all the, all the films. And... Uh, then I could answer that to students and say, this is, this is how he looks at it. His ability to break a book down and condense it into the length of a film and then create, find and create the core of that book into a film is a massive talent. And it's, it's one that I think can make a, you know, a great director. And I think most of them are that way, you know, that, that make really beautifully intense films that don't require, say, a lot of action to stimulate the film audience. He can do it with dialogue and people looking at each other and maybe not saying anything. Maybe not saying anything at all is the most powerful way to do it. I remember you know, Peter Weir did that at the end of Witness and then the studio said, you know, you've got to say goodbye to each other at the end. And he said, no, they'll just look. They know, the audience knows, and they'll just look at each other and he'll walk away. And they said, no, you, we don't think, we, we think you have to have the dialogue there. So that these directors have the strength to know what the power of an actor can bring to the screen and make that work. Wonderful stuff. Speaking of which, uh, you had a short foray into directing in 1991 with Till There Was You. And I wondered, uh, how did that come about? Did you seek that opportunity out or, or did it simply materialize in front of you? It did materialise. I was I'd just finished Dead Poets Society with Peter, and uh, I'd been travelling with so much in uh, the year, with five or six years before. I had two wonderful little children, and I suddenly thought I've got to stop, and I've got to have a life with my children. And uh, this suddenly came up in Australia, and I suppose if I'm going to be very honest, the ego in all of us as filmmakers is there sometimes as a as a cinematographer and camera operator, you're so close to the actors, you're so close to the helping of the making of a film that that maybe in a sad way, your ego can spill over and say, well, I could do that. 
I could have a go at that. And I was given that go, and I, I did it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sorry I did it. I wasn't able to handle it. Uh, and mainly it was, it was that interaction between the actors and myself and the actors themselves on the screen. That was the most difficult part. It's where I realised later, working with, with people like Peter and uh, Anthony, they could do it. They knew how the actors should, should uh, interact and integrate between them. They knew how to do that. And I didn't. Much as I'd been on sets all my life, I didn't know how to do it. What it did do for me, I think, is made me realise what an unbelievable workload a director has. And I hope in the, in the films that I've made as a, as a director of photography since that I've helped a lot, lot more because of that knowledge. I wondered if I might ask you your thoughts on the nominees this year for Best Cinematography. I don't get a chance to ask my guests very often what they think about the nominees before the Oscars actually hand it out. I think it's a terrifyingly hard year. Not that every year isn't. All the guys do such beautiful stuff. And it's where what we're talking about is when the, the cinematographer creates the look of a film that suits it perfectly. I get very excited. And every year I look at the films and and think, my gosh, they did a beautiful job of that. So-and-so did that beautifully. That film, this one is great. And that one, that's where it's difficult. And it, if you're not going to look, just look for a film that's beautiful, um, photography, per se, that it's, the photography is beautifully integrated to the film, that's the hard part. And so uh, this year is, is phenomenal. And it's also... A big year of changing styles. You know that you know the old classic times have gone. Now it's handheld and it's uh, the continuity more obscure. So that we're looking at a new wave of making films, and the and the cinematography integrating into that new wave is fascinating stuff. It really is. I find it very difficult. I think people often ask me what's my best film, and I always say the next one because I'm going to work really hard to try and make that. Um, and then they say, what's your favourite film from other people? And I say, all of them, because everybody I know puts so much hard work into them to make them work. So I find that voting for an academy system is so difficult, and I try to vote for the guy that I think's done the best job for the film, not for but photography, but for the film. That didn't even cross my mind that you actually voted for, for this. <laughs> so, oh, yes. so you no, made, no, so you've made a decision. You, <laughs> you know uh, who you voted for. I'm about to, and I have to get it off very quickly because it always arrives here in Australia a little later than everybody else, and uh, so I, I've yet to make it, and it'll be done today, actually. And, oh, okay, and, uh, all right. We'll see what happens. So I'm still in, in flux at the moment. I won't press you anymore about it. <laughs> <laughs> This may be a moot point now, but any younger cinematographers that have really come out of the gate and impressed you? There's a, there's a whole raft of them have appeared uh, every year, um, and there's scads of them now doing the um, photography for this sort of new wave of filmmaking, and uh, it's most interesting. Also shifting into digital, uh, um, you know, we're looking at people now who have... Uh, now young enough and being asked or demanded to go into digital recording rather than film negative. And uh, I think these young blokes are doing a wonderful job of that. They're already being nominated, obviously. The digitally shot movies. 
Yeah, and, and uh, they're coming up now to be nominated, uh, which is uh, great because I've always thought that once we go into this new digital revolution, we have to, as cinematographers, try and accept and absorb and uh, make that digital recording into a craft as quickly as possible that suits all the different kinds of films that are being made, and uh, also 3D, of course. So all these young guys that are coming up now, when I say young, they're, they're, they're young in the uh, industry, but they're not necessarily young in body, but, but uh, they're accepting this new uh, revolution of uh, film imaging with a, with a gusto, I must say. So when you say a new wave of films, is that what you mean, the digital revolution? Or are you talking more about sub- subject matter? Subject matter is coming into it. Everything's coming into it. It's uh, the way uh, the old traditional wide shot, medium shot, close up, forget it, continuity, forget it. Uh, and that continuity was something I was extremely anal about. I was, it was pounded into me by, by people when I was in a learning stage. Um, throw that out. You know, uh, you look at Tree of Life and uh, Malik's stuff is pretty amazing. And of course, Chivo's stuff is fantastic in that. But continuity, it, it's a very much jerkier business, but it has a style. It's so interesting. You look at the Bourne Ultimatum series that are so f- quick in editing that sometimes, you know, a lot of it's handheld. Forget tripods and cranes and things. It's all handheld. And when you get a film that's got a combination of all of that, that it's digital, it's handheld, that it's, it's uh, continuity is, uh, is different, this has to be a new wave of storytelling. It's very much more sort of... Uh, visual experiments uh, as well as amazing stories that are coming out of people's minds and I think it's um, a very exciting era for young guys and uh, women who are getting into the industry in any way or form. It's a very exciting time. I I believe there was a film shot uh, on an iPhone. So we're accepting quality of image of, of almost anything now, you can shoot on almost anything as long as the story's good. I mean, I, that's something I've believed all, all along is that, you know, the first three shots of a movie set the precedence of the visuals uh, in quality. Um, then after that, the audience isn't going to worry. They're not going to worry about quality. They're going to they're going to sit back and say, "Give me a story. Take me away. Let me escape." You know, I paid fifteen dollars and I want to escape <laughs> and go into another world. And I'm a great believer in taking them into that world in any way or form, uh, and that's what this revolution is doing. Well, sometimes those worlds involve beautiful European locales, like for your recent film, The Tourist. And I wonder if you might tell us how you got the job for The Tourist. I think it was basically because I'd worked with Mengele, and the director really loved the uh, second film I did with Anthony, The Town of Mr. Ripley, which is a very powerful index story of a, of a man uh, bent on uh, power or what uh, and, and also uh, being in a closet uh, of, of a kind and wanting to break out very powerful film and the director loved that and he, I think he thought that I should do the first for him and this was a situation where I do believe that I got the nod from the actors to be able to do it because they were both wonderful actors and had done films with other cameramen and I think were very familiar there. Um, but they felt that, uh, I hadn't worked with them, but they felt that uh, my my um, body of work was... Uh, was, uh, was impressive enough? enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I ended up doing the film. And uh, that was an interesting film because it, he, the director did not want to do uh, 
uh, you know, have a film that was part of this new revolution of hand-holding and things. He wanted it to be almost, in fact, old-fashioned in its approach, in, in always, always uh, and form in the film. So that was quite uh, quite interesting to go back to the wide shot, medium shot, close up, and continuity, uh, and um, and very much more static cameras, very much more pretty lighting, making the actors look really good because that was you know way back Hollywood. That's what Hollywood demanded: make them look good. That film is kind of like a throwback to. It is a throwback to films like North by Northwest or To Catch a Thief. You're saying those are the technical ways you were referencing those kind of films with the the more classical approach, as you put it. That's right, and it's something I think that uh, we as cinematographers need to be able to accept, you know, that a director might say, I don't want this to be a modern handheld film, I want it to look like, and To Catch a Thief was the film that the director did uh, make a note of, and he said, I want it to look like that, I want that Grace Kelly look, that lovely, uh, beautifully photographed, and she's always looking cool and lovely, I want that look, and, and for Johnny Depp, the look of Cary Grant is there. Um, that sort of feeling, that's what he wanted. I think that as cinematographers, that uh, much as we might think, oh, yeah, but no, this film, this should, you know, with the action in it, we should be nitty-gritty, you know, photojournalistic, handheld, running around corridors and things. Um, but that's not what he wanted. You know, and I think we do have to obey the director's wants and needs for the final product, and that's what we should aim for and be prepared to adapt to. Well, going back to the films that are nominated this year, I just sort of had a curiosity. Have you seen The Artist? Yes. What did you think? Fascinating to be able to do that and be and to get it to the stage where it where it has reached in uh, nominations. Uh, I think it's fascinating, and watching it was so wonderful. I think I think the, the actors uh, with that without dialogue. I think the actors and the photography, the black and was just fantastic. And it threw back and proved that, that, in my mind, that the final product that a director drives for is what we are. We should all be heading for, and all of the combinations of the technical side of that film all came together to make this that that film such a delightful, understanding film. I don't think anybody uh, misunderstood the film. I did read somewhere people are asking for their money back because they didn't realize it was a silent film. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Uh, so uh, that, that was, but to, to, for it to reach the status that it's reached uh, is a great, great credit to the, all the filmmakers of, of that film. I think it's a delight. Who was your favorite silent film comedian from the old days? Oh, from the old days? Uh yeah, like, I mean, I've been having a hard time getting favorites out of you, but <laughs> I thought I'd ask you, you know, are you a Chaplin man or a Keaton man or Harold Lloyd? I'm always in awe of those old films. When you watch some of those Keaton movies where the stunts were real is awesome. And you know that they could have died, like that building falling on that guy and he just happened to be standing in the top story doorway when it hit the ground. You love them all. Uh, they're so subtle in some ways, so, so much more subtle than we're doing now. I think we're a bit tram smash now. You know, we we have to punch the audience between the eyes to make them react. But I suppose that's part of the uh, evolution of films. But the subtlety, uh, the the humour in in Chaplin and Keaton movies uh, is just incredible. And and uh, I think we should all learn 
from that, but uh, certainly I think the makers of the artist did a beautiful job in pulling that older filmmaking method forward to become a nominated film is just extraordinarily wonderful. I asked this question of Russell Boyd, and I got such a lovely response, I thought, what the heck, I'll ask John too. What is the strangest thing that's happened to you in your career? The strangest thing? That's, that's interesting. Uh, that is very interesting. In the early days when I started in film, it wasn't a proper job. And those comments came a lot from friends of my father's and people around me, all the people around me who felt that you should take an apprenticeship of some kind and a traditional apprenticeship of butchering or carpentry, electrician, plumber. Uh, even my school said that um, I should take up plumbing. Based on aptitude tests or those types of things? Yeah, yeah, which I thought, I looked at him and I thought, gosh. But I, well, I wasn't into film then, of course, but film came along slowly um, and uh, I went out uh, into the back blocks of Australia and became what they call a jackaroo, like a cowboy, on 30,000 acres of land and spent 18 months out there and that's where I found photography. And I came back to Sydney and pursued that and it still wasn't a proper job, even though three or four years, five years had moved on, still wasn't a proper job. And here I am today, having had a wonderful, wonderful life in that profession and wondering, you know, and now, of course, there thousands of students all around the world who want to get into film. It's a vibrant, energetic, wonderful, creative business that, uh, you know, we'll all learn to love. They'll all learn to love when they get into it. So I think probably the strangest thing was that Apropos of my father's friends foreboding that it wasn't a proper job and when are you going to get a proper job, I've reached a point where honours and uh, wonderful attributes to your work have come in over these last few years. I think it's a wonderful thing. I don't know whether it's strange, but it's strange, I suppose, that the success that I've managed to enjoy simply because I love the energy of helping to make films has become such a wonderful, maybe, uh, example to students, lovely people, students. They think there's secrets in it, but there aren't. And uh, I try to lecture that all the time. And so I think that's maybe the strangest thing, that something you just simply love doing has become such a sort of um, desire of so many people. You were a camera operator on several films where one of our previous guests, Russell Boyd, was the director of photography, movies like Gallipoli and... Picnic at Hanging Rock. What do you remember learning from Russell? Oh, Russell was—he was great. He was one of the pioneers, obviously, of, of the Australian cinema resurgence. Um, and I think a lot—a lot of what I learned from Russell was that exactly that was doing what the director wanted and getting the result the director wanted. He worked very hard. Picnic at Hanging Rock. He experimented with nets and coloured nets at a time when really they weren't being used in Australia, and he pioneered that, I think, for Picnic and Hanging Rock. And he did his own experiments very quietly and then said, let's try all, the, all this stuff in the front of the lens, and we had these filters, and it gave this lovely... He fashioned it on the look of, of um, some of the older Australian painters who captured the Australian outback with its particular look, a dryness and brown earth and brown grass and... Uh, Uh, Everything was sort of brown and dried, and he captured that by subduing the the Kodak negative with the filters. So I learned a lot out of that. 
that that's what he did to make the script suit the film. And in that time era of the outback, that he blanded everything into a sort of a, an ochre, dry earth colour, which uh, was very, very lovely. And he did a beautiful, beautiful job of it. So I learned out of that that this became the thin end, end of the wedge of, of making a film for the, for the director and the final result that was most important. He was also a very, very talented man, obviously, and it came easy to him. And he let me run with the director as the operator so that we actually went into the English system where the director would go straight to the operator. And I know I frustrated him a lot because talking to the director, he'd be off lighting and uh, we'd say, what if we started at the door and, and brought him through the door, uh, which wasn't being lit? And the director might say, oh, that'd be great because then the cut would come from blah, blah into so-and-so and we could bring him through. Oh, that'd be great. Better transition. So I'd have to race over to Russell and say, Russ, we're starting at the door. <laughs> and he'd go, oh, my. But he was always so wonderfully professional about it because he knew that that discussion and that decision would be simply to make a better film. So, you know, I learned out of that. I learned from everybody. I learned from all those early guys. Don McAlpine was so fast. He could light the next angle quicker than I could get the camera around to do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, Russell had other attributes. And I learned from all of them, and that's something I loved doing. And I think that I loved him doing operating. But, but Russ was so talented and so innocent of that talent, was so wonderful that he never made a fuss of anything and, and it all happened. And even when I made his workload three times worse than it already was, maybe, he was always so philosophical. We'd have a beer afterwards and a bit of a laugh and a chat and, and there was never any animosity. And, and as I said, that talent of his just came so easily and quickly that uh, we were able to do things that garnered him in a, a, a British Academy Award. And he's still a great mate, even though... Uh, very sadly, the press sometimes give me credit because I camera operated on some of those. And then later when I became my own uh, entity as far as uh, being a direct photography was concerned, I was given credit for some of Russ's films. And uh, it infuriated him and I, I don't blame him at all. And I remember once he rang a, a big newspaper here in Australia and he abused the hell out of them because they'd given me credit for one of his films. And rightly so. But he never, ever, ever once took it out on me in any way or form. He knew it was a journalistic mistake and uh, one that shouldn't have happened. And uh, But we're great mates still. We, you know, we, when we can, we go sailing. And, uh, even though we've been nominated against each other in the same uh, <laughs> the same night, um, and he won, fantastic. Back in two thousand three, right? Uh, was it that long ago? Oh my gosh! <laughs> for master and commander. Yeah. And you were nominated for Cold Mountain, right? Cold Mountain, yeah. So it's wonderful. It's wonderful that we both, you know, had uh, parallel paths really, and both worked together, and uh, and we're both very satisfied with uh, with what we do. I think. What's the best advice you can offer young or new cinematographers? Ooh, another hard one. Um, <laughs> Sean, if they're trying to get into the industry, I, I simply say you have to badger somebody. 
you have to badger everybody have to find out you know who's making the films and who's got something coming up this year next year and get on the bandwagon and ring somebody ring people depending on what they would like to do on the film like either photography or sound or editing or whatever they they need to badger people until finally somebody says for gosh sake give that man a job which is basically what happened to me and i've had people do it to me and they're they're working with me and for me and that's exactly what they did so uh, if they're wanting to get into it, I think that's the only way really to do it. If they're already in it, I feel that, you know, if we're cinematographers, we need to interpret the script and the director's visual needs and wants for that film and go make that with them and become a family with them. Then you're an extreme asset to that director and to the film. And then obviously maybe that, you know, that director's going to say, let's get him back again because we got on well and the end result was exactly what I wanted. It's a fascinating business, the film business, because it's all in the eye of the beholder for the cinematographer and it's making it agree with somebody else and yet you still have your own satisfaction coming out of it off the screen when you see the final result. And so it's a very complex creative business in a way, but a very, very much a satisfying one. And I think people have to just persevere to get into it, and once you're in it, to stay in it. Well, John, I can say from a grateful heart, we appreciate so much you being on the show today, and I've learned a lot. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. Oh, uh, well, thank you very much. I hope there is some little glimmer of thoughts and ideas in there that'll help. <laughs> There's more than a glimmer, I assure you. Oh, great, great. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Sean. Our thanks again to John Seal, ACS, ASC, for joining us today. And our thanks to you for downloading this episode of The Camera Report, produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. For more episodes of The Camera Report, please visit waterfootfilms.com and click on the podcast link. Subscribing is easy and free. Also, search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and then like us to see updates. If you'd like to offer feedback about the show, please email us at podcast at waterfootfilms.com. I'm Sean Malone. Thanks for listening.